seat real quick. Danny, thank you for taking me back to the early 90s. That sound, that keyboard sound was just every sitcom from like the early uh, 90s. I just loved it. I loved it. Thank you for taking me back to my childhood. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Riverbend. If you're new here, my name is Brooke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad to just be with you today. We are in a series called the Sermon on the Mount. And what we actually do is we make you get comfortable and sit down and then we read the scripture and we all stand up together. So let's all stand together real quick. Uh, that wasn't on purpose. I do apologize. But we do stand and we're going to read the scriptures together. We're going to be specifically focusing on three verses today and specifically in the Beatitudes, which I'm uh, excited to share. So read along with me out loud should be on the screen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space. We invite you to rearrange our motives, our focus, our priorities. We ask that you'd get to the heart of things today, not with just our church, but with us. Father, for some in this room, we need encouragement. I just pray that you would encourage your people today. For those who are coming in with a broken heart on any level, we ask that you would just bring comfort and re restoring love. For those who have come in just surprised by their own depravity this week, would you remind them that they're loved, forgiven, in you, they're chosen. In you, they're completely strengthened to live a life. They're not bound to sin. They're bound to you, and you give forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Jesus, I pray that you would soften the hardness of our hearts and the areas that we need softening. Only you know that. And so open us up to what you want to do in your activity today for not only your glory, but for our good. And everyone said joyfully, please. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. In the year 2010, uh, some of you are 12, uh, in the year 2010, uh, a new Christopher Nolan film came out. It was July, it was summer, it was the big summer hit, and this movie was called Inception. Anybody heard of this movie? Andrew, you've heard of it? So Andrew and I have this running joke, he, he rarely knows cultural references, because I feel like he was just so godly, and is so godly for so long, he just stays removed from the world, and then I say something, like, have you heard of this movie or this music, and most of the time, like, it's no. But uh, I'm glad to know you know this one. Uh, so in this film, uh, we're introduced to this character named Dominic Cobb. And, and this guy's a spy, if you remember the film. And instead of breaking into a person's home or breaking into someone's office or even computer to get information, he actually gets what he needs by breaking into someone's mind through their dreams. Fascinating idea. Now this character, uh, Cobb, if you remember, is also a fugitive. And he can't see his children because his in-laws think that he killed his wife. And also, if you remember the, the story, someone approaches this guy, Cobb, and wants to hire him and get some information out of this man. But this time there's a twist. Instead of getting this information out, this guy wants to implant a, something into his mind through a process called inception. Now, as you can imagine, if you remember the story, Cobb's hesitant to do it, so the man offers to help 
So they build this big like team and they start this process of inserting an idea into someone's mind through inception. And one of the main points of this film, and it's a really powerful point, is to highlight the power of an idea. And this is my, one of my favorite quotes from the film, and I think it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about. It says this, An idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious, and even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. Now, we find ourselves today at a time in history and a time in culture where the world is telling us a few things about how we are to find true happiness and fulfillment in life. And spoiler alert, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's different. A lot of these ideas in our culture are so ingrained in our mind that we don't even know that we are necessarily trying to find happiness through these different mediums. Just take a moment and ask yourself a couple things from this past week, right? Ask yourself this past week, when did you try to find happiness, but maybe end up failing to find it? Let me give a couple examples. Maybe this week you took an extra job because you're buying into this wonderful idea that if you have enough money or have enough stuff or own a home that you will finally be happy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, I will finally be happy. Uh, Maybe this past week you found yourself trying to get away and experience all that Bend has to offer, the mountains, the rivers, the lakes, Because you wanted to find a certain level of happiness, but again, you felt shorted. And maybe even internally, you you felt like it just wasn't what I had hoped for. Or lastly, maybe you're a person who has relational tension. And you're buying into this age-old lie that this person just doesn't make me happy. And that's the most important thing. So I'm going to eject from this relationship and find someone that will. Again, spoiler alert, another person will also make you unhappy, right? Now, if we look into any of the social sciences around the topic of happiness, here's what people find. The more people pursue happiness, the less happy they actually are. Isn't that fascinating? And we can acknowledge that something is broken, either in our perspective or how we, uh, of how we obtain happiness or what our culture says is the way to true happiness. There's something broken there. And the Beatitudes, where we're at today, are Jesus' answer to this human, age-old question about happiness. And he gives us an answer in the form of a series of promises and challenges. And at the same time, the Beatitudes also offer this radical re-envisioning of the people of God. That's what they're doing. That's what Jesus is trying to do. And Jesus does this in a really unique way, right? He doesn't present a list of heroes of faith. He doesn't say, here's all the people that have done it. And he doesn't give a list of moral behaviors to describe like the truly religious person. Rather, he redefines radically who the people of God are. That's how he goes about it. And Jesus gives us this way of being in the world. We're to be like Jesus himself. And so as Andrew set up last week beautifully, here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a vision excuse me, a vision of a way of being in the world that will result in our flourishing. This is a way of being who you are, how you're moving in the world. He gives us the answer to that question, which I know we are all asking, which is how can I truly be happy? Jesus says, here's the software to work with the hardware of life. This is actually how it works. Now, we would be suspicious, I know I would, if Jesus was just talking about this but didn't live it. But Jesus what? He actually lived all of this out. He carefully and thoughtfully worked it out. Remember, Jesus is humble. He's poor in spirit. 
He mourns, he grieves, he hungers and thirsts with longing for God's kingdom to be manifested. He's pure in his heart. He shows mercy. He brings peace. Jesus actually lived this out, and we have that example. Now, uh, Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that wrote the, the message translation of the Bible. He has this, he's also a pastor and a writer and an author, but he instructs readers of the Bible to understand the Bible in a specific way when they are reading it, to understand the bigger story. And in my humble opinion, I think this is very helpful for the Beatitudes. And this is what Eugene Peterson says about how we are to read the scripture. It says, scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, here's the point. The biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite. Rather, it's live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. That, por- that part, last part again, live into this. Jesus isn't saying be that. He's saying live into this. If you want to know what it looks like to be a God-made, God ru- like God-made human in a God-ruled world, this is what it looks like. And so, this week's text, Matthew 5 and 6, let's get into these. We have four Beatitudes we're going to cover today. The first one, you've heard it before, but here we go. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, before we dive into what this actually means, I would love for you to just take a moment personally and think about what you think this means. How many times have you read this and you kind of made some assumptions about it? Anybody? Anybody going to be honest, right? You read it and you go, I think I know what that means. And I'll be honest, like I took some time this week and did the same thing. And I'll tell you what I thought it meant and think it meant. Uh, I, I, for a very long time, thought this means that I'm supposed to really desire God like a lot. And that makes me a lot like Jesus. And then I'm fulfilling this verse. Anyone else? I mean, it seems pretty surface, right? Well, that's not in fact what it's talking about. And as I studied, I was shocked and blessed and disturbed and all those things all at the same time. Now, the key for us to understand what Jesus is getting at in the heart of this particular beatitude is to understand the word righteousness. Uh, The the question we often ask is whether righteousness is something God gives or something that we do. Have you heard people ask that? Is righteousness something like God imparts to me or is that something we do? And, And really, actually, theologians widely agree it's both. God brings righteousness as our deliverance, right? But we participate in it by doing righteous things. We do righteous things. But the often overlooked question is, what does righteousness really mean, like biblically? What's its shape? What's its content? What are we hungering and thirsting after when we hope and long for righteousness, actually, right? And this is especially important because the English word that we have for righteousness, it almost communicates unintentionally a false meaning. So how do we actually understand this? Well, first of all, our culture, as we all know, is very individualistic. So we often think of righteousness as a virtue that an individual person has, right? You've you've thought, like, that person's a righteous person. And because our culture is possessive, we often think of it as something that an individual possesses. But righteousness that an individual, one person, possesses is actually called what? Self-righteousness. And the Bible says we can't have that, right? Like, don't have self-righteousness. That's not what this is about. So to understand, the Greek word here for righteousness is diakosune. And, it, and the root word has a connotation in justice. It's not that word. It's going to be in a minute. It's okay. That's another word. It's Hebrew, though. And I, it's okay. 
Now remember from last week, Jesus read from the Old Testament and understood what biblical righteousness was, right? Jesus actually knew it because he read those scriptures. So the Greek root word right here has a connotation of justice, but Jesus read the Old Testament, right, back in the, like I just said. Now, Jesus, though, did not speak English or Greek. He spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. And so when we look at what the Hebrew word is for righteousness, we get a clearer picture, which is the word you just had up, which you can put up, which is Shadaka, actually. Doesn't look like that, but that's how you pronounce it, Shadaka. And it actually means delivering justice. That's what this word means. In other words, righteousness has its roots in the idea of delivering justice, specifically in two ways. First, the first way is a justice that rescues and releases the oppressed. Delivering justice, righteousness, delivering justice. The second way is community restoring justice, a justice that restores the powerless and the outcast to their rightful place in covenant community. This idea of righteousness isn't just about a person being right with God, although there are moments of that in the scriptures. What Jesus is specifically referring to is community restoring justice. And that is why the hungry and the thirsty hunger and thirst for righteousness. They desire bodily for the kind of justice that delivers them from their hunger and thirst and restores them into community where they can eat and drink and be at peace with other people. Now, it may be that the only readers who have experienced injustice, hunger, and exclusion from community can fully even experience what Jesus is trying to get across in this verse. But those were the exact kinds of people who were especially drawn to Jesus, right? The people who were oppressed, and and Jesus came to rescue in a huge way. In the Old Testament, the righteousness has the idea of preserving the peace of the wholeness of community. Back to that idea of justice, right? Its meaning is very close to social justice that delivers from alienation and oppression into a community. God's character, if you think about the Old Testament, some of his character is seen best in delivering the people of Egypt from the oppression of Pharaoh back into covenant community, into the promised land. Remember, that is some of the beautiful things that Jesus does. So we're going to go through this, each one. So this is what the fourth beatitude means. You can write it down. It's a little bit long, but it will be helpful. You can write it down for later. The fourth beatitude means, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a justice that delivers and restores to covenant community. That's what it means. Blessed are you. Your life is flourishing when you hunger and thirst for Jesus' kind of justice in the world that restores covenant community to people that are oppressed, marginalized, broken. That's what that means. So next, we have the next verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Uh, the Greek word here for mercy is elamoin, excuse me, and it means generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Mercy is actually about action. Mercy is about action. A specifically, a, a generous action that delivers someone in need of bondage. Now, if you've uh, been around any amount of time, uh, mercy is something that you've heard of, right? You understand mercy is, is something that we all need. Uh, Proverbs 14.21 says, He who despises his neighbor sins. And that idea in the Amplified Bible is against God and his fellow man and himself. But happy, which means blessed and fortunate, 
is he who is kind and merciful specifically to the four, the poor, excuse me. Now, to understand this beatitude, we have to understand that mercy in the Gospels can mean forgiveness. That delivers from bondage or guilt, or more often, an action of deliverance. Uh, when Jesus wa was walking down the road, you remember, uh, when people called out, have mercy on me. They didn't mean like, hey, Jesus, let me off easy and forgive me in eternity, right? No, what, did they, what were they saying? They're like, heal me, deliver me, practically help me. Like, have mercy on me meant please, in practical action, Help me out of this really tough, challenging situation that I'm in. Have mercy on me. Now, throughout Matthew, specifically the book we're in, mercy implies that merciful action is the concrete expression to God, loyalty to him. If you love God, mercy comes out in your actions. That's where it lives. It actually lives in what you do. And if you truly follow Jesus, mercy and action will flow out of your life. Now, when God calls us to mercy and calls us to live in this mercy in action, we are not only to just have then love towards him, it's actually to have love towards him that pours out in action to other people. It pours out to others and blesses them. So, in essence, the fifth beatitude, really quick, we're going to move on to the next one. The fifth beatitude means this. Blessed are those who, like God, offer compassion in action, forgiveness, healing, aid, and loyally committed to those in need. We'll leave that up there for a minute. You are God-like when you offer compassion in practical ways. Jesus says, if you want a flourishing life, don't just look over someone else's situation, neighbor, problem. Like, take it upon yourself, mercy in action. Take action, practical healing steps for other people in need. And then the third one we're focusing on today, but the sixth beatitude in general is Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I love this one. And again, we find ourselves with one of those sayings that Jesus has that seems straightforward, but honestly is not very straightforward. I think to help us understand this a little better, Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, uh, Jesus actually says something here that gives us insight to what he's trying to convey in this specific beatitude. And it says this, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. So you might be asking, what does food or digestion or whatever, like how does that like play into this beatitude? Great question. I'm glad you're asking. Is everyone awake? Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, in this sentence right here that Jesus says, Matthew 15, 11, he gives two ideas really quick of purity that actually stand opposite of each other. Let me explain really quick. The idea in Jesus' day was that impurity comes from the outside, meaning bad influences, bad culture, sinful people. That's where evil comes from. But in this specific beatitude, Jesus flips the whole idea on its head and says, no, actually impurity doesn't come from the external. It actually starts right in your heart. Now, we can obviously all appreciate the reality of a bad influence or someone being negatively influenced um, in our life, right? Like you, you were growing up and your parents were like, don't hang out with bad people, right? They influence you negatively. That's absolutely true. But Jesus says that's not where the origin of evil is. That's not where it starts. It starts, impurity starts in us. He goes in a very different direction and says, instead of the heart being pure, like everyone thought, he says, no, the heart is the origin of impurity. He says, it's not the influences that make a person unclean. It's much more the outfluence, the outflows. 
And Jesus is trying to get to that idea. It's the impurity that you and I cannot distance ourselves from. He's helping us understand that this isn't something that you can just put in a box and say that's someone else's problem, that's someone else's thing, or that's them, not me. He's saying, no, the problem lives with inside of you. It's a heart issue and has to be dealt from inside, from the inside out. As one writer puts it, I love this. The way to purity is in giving myself over to an all-encompassing orientation towards God. The way to purity, listen one more time. The way to purity is giving all of yourself, every part of your life, your schedule, your mind, your heart, your devotion, every part of it over to an all-encompassing orientation, that idea of focus, everything about you becomes about that towards God. God is the originator of purity. He was all about it. And if we give ourselves to him in full devotion, every part of our life will become pure. He's saying it starts inside of you. Now, if you're human, right, if you're alive and you're breathing and you have relationships, you know what Jesus is talking about, right? You know what he's saying, that this starts with inside of you. There's many of you that do a great job of pretending to like people. Anybody? Right? Like, you've done this for, for so many years. You do a great job of being like, I'm going to make sure that these people think that they like me. Now, some of you don't care. That's okay. We know, we know who you are, right? We know. But some, some people are really great at, like, pretending that they like people. Now, if you don't relate with what I'm saying, just think, have you ever been to a Thanksgiving dinner, right? And at said Thanksgiving dinner, someone says something that just opened the floodgates of what's really inside of you. And then all of a sudden, there's, like, this eruption of words and thoughts and phrases, which don't need to be mentioned, uh, from you that they just flow out. You're just saying all sorts of things. Like, you're fine until you're, like, not fine. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it starts in the heart. Now, we're really good at making sure the exterior things, whether that's the things we do, like, okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, or I'm going to be socially present and kind to these people. We're really good at making sure the exterior is well taken care of. Even physically, right? We're eating well, we're getting enough exercise, we're hiking, we're spin classes, we're bar classes, right? So many of you are either paleo or flexitarian or vegetarian or pescatarian or vegan or keto. You're making sure that things are done right and you're feeling tight. Mm. <laughs> not really after COVID, but that's like a whole other teaching. Uh, like you're really good at making sure it's all dialed, right? But then all of a sudden something happens and things come out of your heart. Now, this past six months for me have been crazy personally, and this is not the right time or space to share. Uh, everything's fine. Everyone's okay. But it's just been a particularly crazy hard six months, like the hardest of my life by far. And I have a therapist who I love who's like, he, I always try to explain to people, he's like Jesus, Yoda, and Mr. Rogers, all in the same person. <laughs> he really is. He's like 70, I think he's 72 now, and he looks like Mr. Rogers. Doesn't sound like Yoda, but getting closer, and has the heart of Jesus, and he's just an incredible gift. And so, uh, I have been surprised these last six months at stuff that's come out of my life, right? Like, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking things I've never thought or said things I would never say. I'm like, who is this person? person, right? Have you ever been in a, a space where you like are surprised at your own depravity? Anybody? I've had so many moments like that these six, last six months. And my therapist was so kind. He said, let me help you understand something. You've never been in this much pain before. So this amount of pain is squeezing everything out that is actually in your heart, which is really sucky. <laughs> it's really like, it's hard to be like, okay, I'm these are things I don't like and that my wife doesn't like and she helps me see that. 
those aren't good things. I, I shouldn't like these either, right? Like you see these, these dispositions of your heart and you see your own depravity. And what Jesus is trying to get to is that when life happens, when things come out, like life can squeeze things out of you that are really truly inside. It starts in the heart. Jesus is trying to get to the reality that you can do a bunch of external things right, but be missing it in your heart. He's saying simply that your motives actually matter, contrary to what you might think. What you do is just as important as why you do it. And that is why the real split isn't actually between the inner and the outer. It's between your worship of God and your worship of self. That's what it's actually between. It's between serving the poor in order to be noticed and respected by other people or just because you want to give to God, which is it. You know, it's between praying and fasting to be seen by others or praying and fasting because you just want to be faithful to God and what he's called you to do. The question for us to ask ourselves is this. Are you truly devoted to God or do you serve God to relieve your conscience of the sin that you know you are not going to stop living in? Ask yourself that question. Are you truly devoted? Because this is what it's really about. In sum, that's what Jesus is trying to say. Is he just your conscience relief? Or are you actually saying, no, I actually am truly devoted to you? That doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean tomorrow it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean that next week you're not going to say the thing that you're like, I don't want to say it. I don't want to be this person, right? It doesn't mean that. It means that you are a person who is actively, specifically pursuing the way of Jesus, pursuing repentance, healing, changing your mind to become the person fully that Jesus has asked you to be. Jesus is helping us to see, to live a, fl a flourishing life truly. It's all or nothing. You cannot have half of your life in what you like and some of the entertainment you like and some of the practices you like and some of the vices you like and then also serve Jesus. It's like all or nothing. You will not live a flourishing life. You will live a flat life. And Jesus isn't saying like, hey, he's warning that for us. He's saying I love you so much that I want you to know that the way to flourishing, you can't be one in and one out. Like Jesus uses this really visceral language. He says, be either hot or cold or I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Like that's really intense. He's like trying to get the point across. This is really important. And it's for you. So the sixth beatitude that we're looking at, third one today, sixth in the series, is this. Blessed are those, this is what it means. Blessed are those who give their whole self over to God, who is the only one worthy of the heart's full devotion. Whole self. The last beatitude today are all about peacemakers. If you're a nine on the Enneagram, you are going to love this, all right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you don't know that reference, peacemaker is the nine on the Enneagram. Uh, the peacemakers, they seek to bring about peace. They just love peace. They love it. Now, since the previous Beatitudes are actually concerned with social relations, uh, I just want to make clear that it's safe to understand that this is actually meant, and Jesus meant this for social interaction. He's not just saying this is peace between you and God. He's actually saying, no, this is peace between human to human as well. Not just you and God, but also with friends, family, people you're with, life, and doing life with. Jesus is the bringer of peace. That's what he's all about. And in being the peacemaker, 
And when you are a peacemaker, you are imitating what God is like. You're imitating who God is and who Jesus is when you bring about peace or when you seek to bring about peace. Being a peacemaker is a part of surrendering to God to bring peace, especially when others harm you or hurt you. It's trusting that God is in control and he can actually bring healing and restitution and and all those things. It doesn't mean it's easy or it doesn't mean you forget, but it does mean that God is a God of peace who brings peace. Now, when we do this, the idea is that we abandon the effort to get our needs met through the destruction of our enemies. Ever, ever been crossed by someone? You're like, I'm going to destroy them. Like, now for some of you, you're like, it was my child last night. Like, they were, they were not going to sleep. Like, I will destroy you if you do not go to sleep. What is, like, if I do that to my kids, this is what happens. What does destroy mean, Daddy? Oh, I, I, that's a great question. Uh, and then I'm looking at my phone. It means to like annihilate without return. Something like that, honey. I don't know. But just go to sleep. <laughs> I've never said that to my kids. Thought it in my heart. See, it's in the heart. I, guys, this is, what, this is confession. <laughs> Let's just take a moment. I'll tell you other things I've said. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, so God comes. He comes to make peace with us. That's why peacemakers, when we are peacemakers, we're called children of God because we are emulating what God's son is like. We are being his children. Now, where this primarily shows up for most of us, especially me, is with those that are closest to us, right? Those who we do life with in a very real way, those that really know us and those who we really know. There can be a fraction an argument, someone hurts you, and we're tempted to wait for the other person to humble themselves finally and make peace, right? Like if they would just get on with it and figure it out. Like I'm always like, honey, why won't you just apologize first? Why can't you just do that? Bad leadership, right? Like that's not how it works, right? We are to pursue peace with other people. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, here's the idea of that verse in a nutshell. It, it is important for you to take responsibility as the person to make peace. If you have a relationship currently today that there is no peace, there's a fraction, there's hurt, it is actually, do, the Bible says here, do everything in your power to make peace. You can't make people apologize. You can't make people forgive you. You can't make people reconcile with you. But you can pursue all of those things. You can pursue forgiveness. You can pursue. You can make the phone call. You can set up the meeting. You can do all of those things. And the Bible is saying, listen, as much as depends on you, if you want to be a peacemaker, do everything that you can to make peace. And if someone shows up and says, I'm not going to do it, that's, that's a different story. That's another conversation. But that's what Jesus is teaching here. He's giving this, us that idea. Now, I've found this also, this can be especially tempting in like working relationships where you guys are friends because of work, but you're not like super close, but you're like acquaintances and you want to keep everything peaceful. And everything's peaceful as long as everyone at uh, work plays by all the social rules that we have, right? We're nice, we're kind, we do all the nice niceties. But the moment someone steps out of place, says something wrong, quits the wrong way, does, does something rude, the claws come out. All of a sudden, that person is the worst. They're like on their way out, like, yeah, I didn't like them anyway, right? Like all the things you really felt about that person come out. And all of a sudden, they're not trusted, they're disrespected. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is not the way to flourish. This is, this is the way of the world. That is the way of death. And Jesus says it's the way to make peace. Now, something important for us to know on this topic you cannot give away what you do not possess. If you are not a peaceful person, 
it's going to be really hard to be a peacemaker. Now, some of you, like we said, Enneagram 9s, right? You're like so amped to be a peacemaker. You like pursue peace even if it means unhealth in other areas, right? Some of you actually don't like peace. You like creating the opposite of that. And you're okay with it, right? You, like, we all need to listen, right, in this moment. Jesus is explaining this. If you aren't experiencing this personally between you and God and working this out, working peace out in your own life, the odds are that you will not really truly be able to be a peacemaker. As we talked about before, the English word for peace just falls flat for the full meaning of what Jesus is really trying to convey here. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it's just a better meaning. Look, look at what shalom means. This is what Jesus means by peace. Peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person that brings that. I would like to be a person that in, encourages that in all of my relationships. The fullness of that idea. We are blessed when we bring shalom through the Spirit into every single one of our relationships. And we pursue that. So, the seventh beatitude means, blessed are those who make peace with their enemies as God shows love to God's enemies. With all that said, what does that mean for us? How are we supposed to let the teachings of Jesus in this moment shape our lives and shape who we become? And I think as we look at the beatitudes, Jesus invites us to live this out very specifically in four different ways in our daily lives, four specific ways. And the first way we see from the first beatitude is being people who find new, inventive ways to help those in need. How do we do this? We are people who use the imaginations that God has given us to be inventive, to help people, to bring justice in all various forms. This isn't about a political thing. This isn't about like which side you land on. This is a Jesus thing. And Jesus says, be creative, inventive, wise, intelligent about bringing justice. If, if there's injustice in your neighborhood, seek to bring about peace in any way that you can. Seek to bring that kind. Secondly, I think it calls us specifically to be people of mercy in action. It's nice to think about Jesus. It's nice to think about God. It's nice to go to church. But if it stops there you are falling short of a flourishing life big time. And Jesus says, listen, if you have the ability, don't just like have mercy in the sense of your heart. Let that move you to action. Where can you show up and help and be the person, the healing agent for Jesus in those different spaces? Thirdly, being people of integrity, right? Pure of heart. Being people of integrity who rearrange their lives to follow Jesus fully. What is in your life that needs to be moved around? Is it work, right? I was talking to somebody before. They're saying, like, my work schedule never allowed me to come to church, so I'm done with that job, right? That's, that's, a, great, that's a great way to rearrange your life to begin to incorporate things that are going to pour into your life. And lastly, I think this looks like being people who bring shalom. And remember the fullness of shalom, right? The fullness is not just one word. It's peace. It's harmony, it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's welfare, it's tranquility. People who are bringing that into each space that we possess, each space that we live. And as we become these types of people, we will experience deep flourishing. Jesus promises that. He says, you want happiness? This is how you find it. Become this type of person. He's saying who you are is just as important as what you do. Let's stand together. Let's pray.
there's no rush in this moment. So my encouragement to you, if you want to close your eyes, if that's helpful, no pressure to, if you want to open your hands, you can do that. If you want to do none of those things, that's fine. But we're going to take a moment and just invite the spirit into our own life and to highlight what he really wants to say. So Holy Spirit, would you just come? We open our minds, we open our hearts. We invite you to do the work in this moment. Friends, the idea here is not to force a thought, a vision, a word, a picture, a verse, but to calm enough, to quiet our minds enough to become aware of whatever impression the Spirit might be putting on your heart. That might look like conviction, it might look like a memory that has just been so sweet between you and him. That might look like a moment of forgiveness or a miracle you've witnessed in your own life. It might just look like being comforted in this moment and feeling safe, secure, whole. It might look like hope, feeling just overwhelming hope in the midst of hardship and challenge. Spirit, would you make us aware of what you're doing and what you would want to say to each of us individually and as a church as a whole. Even as we're sitting here, I have a strong impression, I did even before the gathering, that someone in this space is just hardened to the core, that your heart just is like a black rock and you feel it. You don't want it, but that's where you've ended up. You're here with that heart today and you want to change, but you are having the hardest time thinking about how that's actually going to really happen. And the word for you, if that is you, the first word that is coming to mind is just surrender. Surrender fully. Secondly, invite the Spirit in to help with that process. I think whoever you are, if you are in this room, that, that there's a couple people in your life you know you can call today to bring them into that process. You've been hesitant, but now's the time. I encourage you to do that. And so, Father, for any of us that are in this space of just wanting to grow and become more like you, but are just... Oh, overwhelmed. We just ask for your assistance. Jesus, thank you that you gave us the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit, your main job is to help. So we just pray in just very simple terms, help us. Help us become the types of people that are flourishing personally and bringing flourishing into the world. Help us not read this today and sit, but help us go and change. And, and even as we come to the, the table soon, would you remind us of the beauty of the cross, the beauty of what you did and what you've done. So Holy Spirit, would you move through this time as we sing, as we remember who you are, that you're God and we're not? Would you, Father, move in this space as we sing?